Amen, amen. You guys give it up for the praise team and the musicians this morning. Yeah. Yeah. Blessed us with song, got us in here bouncing like we in the club. I mean, you know, hey, I see y'all, hey. <laughs> praise God this morning. Well, beloved, it's time for us to turn our attention to God's word this morning. Uh, the children are dismissed if they're not already. Um, time for us to turn our attention to God's word this morning. We begin with our homework assignment, with our scripture memory assignment. We are in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we've made our way in the previous two sermons all the way up to verse verses 1 to 5. So let me see if there's someone uh, who would recite verses 3 to 5 for us, and then someone who would maybe do verses 1 to 5. Anybody this morning with their homework assignment? Amy, you're smiling real big. Uh, you're smiling real big. You got it? One to five. Okay, come on. Y'all encourage Inya. Let's go. Amen. Amen. That's what's up. That's what's up. That's what's up. Thank y'all this morning. Let's keep working to hide God's word in our hearts. Now, everybody ought to have the opening. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. All right, so we got a head start, okay? So let's, let's keep building from there, uh, verses 1 to 5. If you need a Bible this morning, raise your hands. Uh, the ushers will provide you with one. If you don't have a Bible, I need a Bible this morning, raise your hands, and we're happy to provide one. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's words, one of the incredible freedoms God has given us uh, in this place and in this day. And so uh, do please take a copy, make it your own, read it, hide God's word in your heart along with us. Well, let me offer a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to our text for this morning. Father, we do thank you for the grace of having your word, having it, Lord, uh, read publicly, preached publicly, memorized publicly, having it in our hands in different translations, um, Lord, we thank you so much that you have made your word so plentiful to us. We could hear it on radio stations. We could click a link and, and hear your word and, and hear it preach. Um, we praise you that it is so plentiful. And yet, Lord, it is so little understood. And so we pray this morning that you make us careful in the preaching of your word and careful in the hearing of your word that we might grow in understanding and mature in Christ. And we confess this morning, Lord, that we need to hear a word from you. We need you to speak to us this morning. We need you to break through the noise, break through the distractions, um, break through the circumstances of our lives. We need you to, to come crashing into focus for us and, and come crashing into our hearing and our thinking, come crashing into our hearts so that we might have more of you, that we might know you better, that we might understand your word and your way, so that we might understand the world and our place in it, so that we might grow to be the people of God, the holy people of God that you have called us to be. Speak to us this morning, O oh Lord, please. Speak to us this morning. Your servants not only listen, we are desperate to hear from you. Speak, O oh Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When you became a Christian, what did people tell you the Christian life would be like? Hard, boring, did I hear boring? Okay, boring, 
Yeah, we're, look, we're looking for honest answers, right? <laughs> Whatever they were. What, what did people tell you the Christian life was going to be like? Plain? Louder. Lame. Lame? Yeah? Okay? So, that no, this is how people view Christians. It's, it's hard, and the payoff of that, it's boring and lame. So I'm going to do this hard thing with no excitement, no fun, no thrill, just blah, right? And this is why many people wait till they're old to think about the things of Christ, right? Well, I done lived my life now. I might as well get the rest of it to God. Where's the lie? Right? Anybody else? What were you told when you first became a Christian? Religious. Okay? Yeah. Strict. Corny. Corny. Yeah? Somebody said, especially Christian hip-hop, right? It's Somebody said it. I didn't say it. Somebody said it, right? We, we have all these views of the Christian life. And you know what's interesting? Even in the answers that we've just given here, all, all of which are, you can hear at different places from different people, you know, one thing that we, we maybe haven't been told, except for the person who said hard, we haven't been told that to become a Christian means you're going to be involved in trials. That's like a basic part of it, right? Jesus said you're going to have trials in this world. You're going to suffer in this world. You're going to be persecuted in the world. He's, Jesus said, listen, if they persecuted me, the son of God who was perfect in all of his ways, if they persecuted me, surely they're going to persecute you who follow me. We often aren't given the sort of full disclosure in the advertisement. Or it's in the fine prints when the commercial starts speaking real fast, you know. Put that down there. But we're also not told, usually, how marvelous it is. Yes, it's hard, and it's sometimes boring, and there are things that begin to feel strict to us because guess what? We were doing whatever we wanted to do out there in the world, just killing ourselves with sin, and now God says don't do that. Everything feels like a stricture, feels like strictness when you're being told you can't do something. So yeah, there's some things, there's some lanes you have to run in, some lanes you got to stay out of, um, but there's this magnificent promise and reality that hangs over the Christian life that we should not forget. And in some cases, or in a certain way, that's what our text is this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Peter is continuing to greet these people he called in verse 1, elect exiles. Elect means they are chosen by God. Exiles mean that they, they don't have a home. They've been forced out into the world. The entire world is no longer their home. And so we shouldn't be surprised if that's the Christian identity, then it's going to, be coming to, it's going to come to us mixed with both blessing and burden, with both triumph and trial. Right? And he's reminded them, despite their suffering, uh, that, that, that our God is blessed. He starts praising in verse 3. And he gives them theological reasons for their doxology. And he points them at the end of verse 5 to their eschatology, the end of all things, a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And now Peter continues to greet them. And he continues his effort to encourage them, these scattered Christians all over Asia who are exiles and suffering. He continues to encourage them by giving them in these two verses a short theology of trials. 
and worship. Those two things go together. Trials and worship. And as we look at these two verses, I pray that what God gives us is a working theology of suffering so that we're not overthrown when we suffer, so that in fact, our rejoicing in our salvation, our praising and worship of God grows deeper and sweeter and richer. One of the things we have to get our minds around as Christians is both those things can exist in the same person. Both trouble and praise. And our text this morning shows us how. So look with me again. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here's our text this morning. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to suggest to you that these two verses give us, again, a, a kind of sketch, a brief outline of a theology of trials. We're going to see four qualities. Um, that define trials, and then we're going to see three reasons for those trials. Uh, Peter opens up in verse 5 by telling us about four qualities of trials. The first thing he says here is that trials are temporary. Trials are temporary, amen. You see it right there? In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. They're rejoicing in their salvation, that in this refers back to the last phrase of verse 5, that salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So he's got them thinking about their salvation, and he's reminding them that they are rejoicing in that salvation. And then he gives us an even though, even though now, for a little while, trials. That's the two-ness of the Christian life. The double consciousness, to borrow again from Du Bois, of the Christian life. We are aware that we are God's people, elect exiles, and have a salvation ready to be revealed. And at the same time, in this world, in this life, we suffer various trials. But trials only last a little while. We may face trials, don't get it wrong now, our entire life. A person may deal with a disease their entire life. A person may face poverty their entire life. A child may wander in rebellion for decades. A person may press uh, on in a difficult relationship their entire life. It could be years and decades that trials attack us. 
But even if a trial lasts our entire life, listen, beloved, compared to eternal life, it's only a little while. It's only a little while. This is vital to understand because pain and suffering can hurt so bad and so long that it suggests to us that it's forever. Pain deceives us that way. We either think it's going to last too long or that it may take us out. But the Bible says it's just a little while. And joy comes in the morning. Here's the second thing in our theology of trials. Trials are sometimes unavoidable. You see the next clause that Peter gives us there in verse 6. He says, though now for a little while, if necessary. And none of us want to suffer. We don't like trials. We don't like tests. We don't like hardships. We would avoid them if we could, but they're not always avoidable. Sometimes they're necessary. Sometimes they have to happen. Right? We, can't, we can't slip out of them. However, even if they are necessary and we can't get out of them, we have to get through them. Right? And these necessary trials may be a consequence of our actions. You know, committing a crime leads to getting arrested. Or it may be a consequence of, of nature. We get older and we start to suffer the pains of old age. Or trials may be necessary because of God's will. It's part of his plan for us. We don't ask for such suffering, but sometimes hardship comes uninvited just knocks on our door. Just know that as a fact. Don't think it's strange when you or I or, or us all together, don't think it's strange when we fall into circumstances that try us, that are hard and difficult. Don't think it's strange if we fall into suffering. In fact, that's what Peter will say a little bit later in this letter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I take it from that the Christian should be on speaking terms with hardship, should be familiar with suffering, should understand trial as a normal part of living in a fallen world. We will have hard things happen to us. Don't let unnecessary affliction cause you to forget your salvation or to think the world has gone wrong. Here's the third thing about trials. Trials cause us to grieve. It caused us to grieve. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you are caused to grieve by various trials. When we grieve, that, that's sort of the natural echo of suffering, is to grieve. It means to feel a deep sorrow. It's a kind of groaning in the soul. Grief is the anguish we experience after pain or loss. And, to, and we can grieve like this because of physical trials. We can grieve like this because of psychological distress. The trial can cause us to grieve. And, and in that grieving, we can experience confusion and anxiety and fear about the future. 
Sometimes there is the trial that causes us to grieve, and then sometimes the grieving itself becomes a trial. Grief robs us or tries to, robs us of, of hope. It numbs us so that we don't feel emotions the way we used to or ought to. And as that goes on, again, grief itself becomes its own trial. This is not strange. This is not unusual. This is part of life in a fallen world. Number four, trials come in many forms. They come in many forms. You see again in verse six, by various trials. Many things in life will try us. Many things. There are physical trials, everything from the presidential fitness test in elementary school to the loss of a limb or an organ from a war to the slow cannibalizing physical trial of a disease. There are psychological trials, the, the fear we face of attack or the emotional worry that comes from instability or abuse to clinical conditions that require psychotropic drugs. There are financial trials. There are relational trials. There are social trials. There are political trials. Has not the last 12 years or so in this country been one long political trial? Not all trials, though have the same effect on all people, right? A trial for one person may not be a trial for another person. Someone might face persecution and just become undone. But the next person who faces it, it seems to be unfazed. One person may endure a hardship in a relationship for many years, and yet another person be unable to countenance that issue for a week or a month. So trials not only come in various forms, but they also have various effects on us. We differ in how we respond to them. Those are the four qualities. They are temporary, sometimes necessary, they grieve us, and they come in different forms. You might be left with the question, though, why? Why are there trials? I mean, it's fine, Pastor T, that they're temporary compared to eternity. It's fine that they are sometimes necessary. We can't always escape them. It's, it's fine that they come in different forms, and of course they grieve us. But if God is all-powerful and God is as good as you Christians say he is, why do trials exist at all? Why does he allow it? Why does he allow me to lose my loved one? Why does he allow my marriage to be on the rocks? Why does he allow my child to go through what they go through? Why does he, does he allow this sickness in my body? I mean, we, we ask that question, why is naturally as we grieve, don't we? Why? Now, I want you to know something about our little church family here. Your questions are welcome. Your questions are welcome. I realize that some of us have come from church backgrounds where you are told pretty quickly whenever you have a why question, don't question God. Don't question God. I want to encourage you to understand that as the response of perhaps the insecure. God's not afraid of our questions. Our questions don't threaten him. And more than that, God wants us to understand his way and his will. He wants us to understand his answers as much as we can 
we can understand and hold on to. Bring your why questions to God. Okay. That's where the ministry happens. That's where he comforts you. That's where he instructs us. That's where he straightens out our thinking. That's where he sometimes reveals idols and, and wrong thinking that's been in our hearts. Your questions are welcome here because they're welcome with God. Now, God gives us three answers to the why question in these two verses. He gives us three answers, and because these are the answers, we'll spend more time, a little bit more time, on these three answers here. But I want us to see these three things. Number, this is the fifth point in our seven-point theology of trial, or this is the first point under the second heading, three reasons for trials. However you're taking your notes, all right? Here it is. Trials come to test the genuineness of our faith to test the genuineness of our faith. Whenever you see the word so that in a sentence, as you see there, it begins at verse 7, it's normally telling us the reason for something. So the first reason God allows trials is so that our faith would be tested and shown to be genuine. Now, understand this carefully. It's not so that your faith would be tested uh, in order to sort of play got you with you, whether or not you're really in the faith or not. It's not quite what's in view there. It's so that your faith, you might say, would be proved genuine. It's through the trial that the faith gets proven as true or genuine. That word that's used for genuine there, uh, sometimes used in, in, in the Greek language, is sometimes used, for example, in the marketplace when someone's selling pottery. You want to sort of see if the pottery is genuine, see if it's, it's, it's actually uh, well-made. And what you do is kind of hold it up and turn it in the light and see if there's any light that shines through the cracks, through the imperfections. What God is doing with our trials is he's holding our faith up to the light like pottery, and he's kind of helping us to see where there might be cracks, where there might be imperfections in order that our faith might be strengthened in those places. Our faith might be proved to be genuine and lasting. It may be weak faith. It may be small faith. It, it, that doesn't, again, sort of cause God to feel any negative way about us. It may be weak and small, but God is interested in proving it genuine. Proving it true. Think of Job in the book of Job. You remember how that, how that book opens. Job is a righteous man. Uh, he is minding his righteous business, praying for his children, because his children might have sinned when he wasn't around. Remember, he's making sacrifices for them. And there's a wager that's happening that Job is unaware of. Satan appears before God along with other angels, and, and he says, God says to Satan, where, where are you coming from? What are you doing? Like, I've been walking all throughout the earth, you know, finding people basically to, to overthrow them and, uh, and, to, and, to, and to attack them. And, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? And there's sometimes you want your name on God's lips. Right? And there are other times it's like, you have to mention me at all, right? And, and God's like, you consider my servant Job, that he's righteous, etc. But God is basically saying, you've considered his faith as a genuine faith. And Satan says, I tell you what, if you take your hand of blessing off of him, I will make him curse you to your face. 
And Job goes through these series of calamities, loses all of his children, loses all of his livestock, loses his servants, etc. Just before one calamity can be fully announced, another calamity comes. And, and Job is left in sackcloth and ashes and dust. And the thing that's going on in that trial is God is proving Job's faith genuine. He's doing it in Satan's face. He's doing it in a way that gets recorded in Scripture and God gets magnified for centuries to come. And he's doing it in a way that will resound to God's glory for all of eternity. Beloved, that's what he's doing with your trial too. And my trial. It's proving that our faith is genuine. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, okay, all right. Prove my faith is genuine. But still, why? We take all that. Well, there's something else trials reveal. Trials reveal the value of faith. The value of faith. You see the person who's still sort of still thinking, well, okay, you know, why, why, why suffering? I give you the first answer, and you're like, well, why, why prove my faith? Why is faith, you know, why is it so important that my faith be tested and be genuine? The person who's asking that question maybe doesn't understand the value of their faith, the value of faith in God. Notice what Peter says there in verse 7. It, 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 it tested genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold that, that um, perishes when tested by fire. Now, now Peter grabs what in the ancient world would, would have been one of the most precious um, sort of commodities, gold. And he, and he thinks about it in its most precious form, sort of tested by fire, sort of purified in the furnace by fire. Now he says this, that, that such gold, that kind of gold, still perishes to some extent. But faith does not. Even today in the gold markets, in the trading of commodities, the price of gold will go up and down. The value of gold will fluctuate a little bit. But he's saying here, now, faith and the value of faith does not suffer that kind of fluctuation, not in God's sight. That the value of faith exceeds, it far exceeds the value even of Gold. What makes us rich in God's sight is not how much money we have, but how much we trust Him. What, 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 what helps us to escape the trials of this life, the real trials of this life that come upon our soul and our person, is not how much money we have in our bank accounts. That might afford you another doctor, another lawyer. That might extend your life a little bit. But when the trial now comes to afflict the soul, the thing that's most valuable is not the bank account. The thing that's most valuable is our trust in God. Peter says your faith is more precious, more valuable than, than gold that's purified. Think about that, beloved. Because we live in a world that tells us that he who has the most toys wins. And I'm here to tell you, like the bumper sticker, he who has the most toys still dies. It won't be trinkets and toys and baubles that secure us in this life. The only thing that secures us in this life is God himself. And the thing that connects us to God, praise the Lord, is not money. 
don't buy no access to God. The thing that connects us to God is faith. It's trust in him. So that's why whenever we find ourselves in a trial, the most precious possession we can have is faith, genuine faith in the God who saved us. Verse 7 is confronting us head on. Because again, when we suffer, we're tempted to think, what, what good is faith? We're tempted to think money or something else is more important than, than faith. Unbelief sneaks up on us. You ever notice that unbelief comes into the door behind trials? Unbelief be like, man, faith is worthless. What good is it going to do? Unbelief speaks like Job's wife when she said to him, curse God and die. Just get it over with. Abandon faith, abandon God. Just, just curl up in a ball and die. Give up, man. Throw in the towel. That's unbelief. And if you hurt bad enough, if we hurt in the right places, we can find that voice in our own head sometimes. We just throw in the towel. But according to verse 7, the purpose of the trial is to reveal the value of genuine faith, not to undermine the value of faith, not to weaken the value of faith. That's not God's purpose. That's what Satan wants. But God intends the testing to show us what is truly worthwhile, and that's him and trust in him. I love the way theologian Eric Ortman puts it. He says, God sometimes allows Job-like ordeals not because he is angry with us or trying to teach us a lesson, but in order to prove the reality of our relationship with him. God sometimes puts us in a position where we lose every earthly reason to be in a relationship with him. This is because there is no other way to deliver us into the kind of relationship with himself where he is loved and honored simply for his own sake. This is the only kind of relationship with God that honors God as God and which will make us happy in eternity. Job-like suffering and loss is, at the end of the day, a means for God to work the salvation of our souls. Only in a Job-like ordeal do we experience the all-sufficiency of God himself as a reality, not a theory. If God's going to save us, he can do nothing else. I love this. What God's doing in the trials is, is so stripping us of earthly comforts, earthly dependencies, until all we have is him. And until he really is first and greatest in our lives, and that's the only kind of relationship that's suitable for the infinite God of the universe. One where he is our everything, not one thing among many things that we trust. Portland goes on to say this. In God's providence, the evil he allows to touch your life will have the exact opposite effect of what your spiritual adversary intends. Instead of destroying your faith, it will drive you deeper into worship. That's God's purpose. Isn't that precisely what happens with Job? Satan unleashed all the fury of hell on Job. And Job says, even if he slays me, still I will praise him. That was God's purpose in Job's suffering, that Job would come to the place where he did not trust any of the things he had, 
but he adored and loved and trusted God alone. That's where he wants to get us. That's the purpose of your suffering, of your hardship, of your trial. Let me give you one more purpose. There's a third purpose here in our text. Trials result in eternal praise. We see it at the end of verse 7. God allows trials so that our genuine faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All these trials, all this suffering, for what? Well, Peter says to Christians who suffer so that it results in the eternal worship of God when Jesus Christ is revealed at his second coming. That's the ultimate purpose. That's the ultimate so what for hardships in the Christian life. Now, I want you to see something. I want you to see something. It's vital to see this, or verses 6 and 7 will seem like foolishness or wishful thinking. Notice that Peter begins with salvation and ends with salvation. In this you now rejoice, that salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And then he ends with, your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Those are two ways of talking about God's salvation. He begins and he ends with salvation. Trials are all through the middle of these two verses, but they are bookend, they are sandwiched together by this remembrance of salvation. Here's what I conclude from this. We should never think about our trials without thinking about two facts. That we are already saved and we will be saved when Jesus comes. Never think about suffering without thinking about your Savior, beloved. Never, never think about your hardships without thinking about heaven. Never think about your trials without thinking first and last about your triumph through Jesus Christ. Never think about your grief without thinking about the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. There is a salvation accomplished on Calvary's cross in the past that is coming on the day of Jesus Christ in the future. And it will swallow up all of our trials. This is why even though Peter mentions trials causing us to grieve, he describes the elect exiles as rejoicing. We grieve because of trial, but we rejoice because of salvation. And the thing that many of us need to do is stop forgetting our salvation. Both can happen at the same time in the same person. Both grief and rejoicing. But we should ask ourselves the question this morning, are we glad to be saved? Oh, I ain't sure. Let me put it a different way. Do we actively rejoice that we are saved? Three people. Are you happily looking forward to the salvation to be revealed at the day of Jesus Christ? Are you allowing your trials to remind you of the eternal praise, glory, and honor that is to come 
because of your trial. Again, here's a mistake that I think many of us Christians make. We can think that this life and this phase of our life, our earthly life and our earthly foretaste of salvation is all there is. That's why we have people giving us the impression that Christianity is boring, that Christianity is lame, that it's corny, that it's just strict and dour and no joy. Stop talking to Christians who talk like that. Find you some Pentecostal, charismatic, Holy Ghost rolling, joy-filled Christians to get some encouragement. Talk to some Christians who are willing to be just a little bit undignified when they praise God. Just to lose themselves just a little bit because they're rejoicing, remembering what they were, and now celebrating what they are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your and my salvation isn't something to have been received one day and then put in a sock drawer back in the back never to look at again. No, 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 no. The fact that we are saved, we put that above the mantle. We put that on the wall of pictures. We, we put that in that place where every visitor to our home looks because we want to say, yes, 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 God is my father. Jesus is my savior. The spirit is my guarantee. I am, I am washed by the blood of the lamb. I am redeemed. I am saved. Praise God, I ain't what I used to be. We're meant to rejoice in this, trial, in this salvation so that when we experience trial and affliction, what we imagine is not how much this hurts, but how great glory is going to be. See, if you think the trials and the suffering have no purpose, and all you're left with is a view of life that life, life is absurd, makes no sense, has no meaning. That's not true, beloved. We must remind ourselves that there is far more to the Christian salvation than what we see. Right? This, this salvation is ready to be revealed. We haven't seen it yet. So, so if we're walking by sight, we stuck like Chuck, Right? Because the thing we see more pressingly and more clearly is the suffering, right? So if we're walking by sight uh, toward a promise um, that we can't see, we, we're going to be stuck, we're going to be lost, we're going to stumble, we're going to not find our way. And so we need reminders, and God has littered the Bible with reminders of, of what's to come. Let me give you two. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 19, I have not seen. Something's just better in the King James. I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Hold that. Hold that. God has prepared some stuff for us that you can't even dream about. You can't even imagine. Oh, I ain't got the words for it. First John 3, 2. What we will be not yet appeared. So we're in this in-between life 
where suffering seems really real and salvation is in some ways invisible to us and we have to hold on to the promise of God's word, hold on to the description of God's word that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither is entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for me. I don't know what I'm going to be, but I know that when I see him, I'm going to be like him. We have to sort of hold fast to the promise that heaven is going to exceed every expectation and blow every category. You ain't seen lit yet. You don't know what a vibe is yet. You you ain't tasted the soft life. All of those are just dim, weak commercials of the glory that's to come. Are you glad to be saved? Then rejoice in your salvation. Well, perhaps you don't rejoice in your salvation. And perhaps you're asking, how can we rejoice in the salvation we have not yet seen when we face trials that we see every day? How do we glorify God when we grieve life itself? Well, again, the Lord has left us in his word. The answer to that question and that problem, being able to rejoice in our salvation while we grieve in our earthly trials, we're able to do that in two ways. There are two Habits of mind, habits of heart that we want to have as Christians. And you might might put these two ways in, in two words, comparing and preparing. Comparing and preparing. This is the application I want us to to learn. We must learn to compare our present suffering to our our coming glory. We see that explicitly in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul there is saying the same thing that Peter is saying in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He uses these words. I consider that the suffering of this present time, the sufferings, plural, of this present time are not worthy of comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Notice that sufferings is plural. Paul says, take all the sufferings you have Add them up, pull them together, then put them on a scale with the glory that is to be revealed in us, and you'll find that your sufferings are as light as a feather compared to the weight of God's glory on the scale. I don't know why, but as I was preparing this and meditating on this, Rakim came to mind. Take seven MCs, put them in a line. Take seven more brothers who think they can rhyme. It'll take seven more before I go for mine. That's 21 MCs ate up at the same time. In Romans 8, 18, God is like, take seven hardships, put them in a line. Take seven more sufferings who think they can rhyme. It'll take seven more afflictions before I go for mine. That's 21 trials ate up at the same time. God will swallow up all our trials in an immense, ineffable, inestimable glory. All at the same time. This is 21 MCs are not worthy to be compared to Rakim. None of our sufferings 
multiplied and added together can compare to what God is going to reveal in us. See, to rejoice while we grieve, we must learn to compare like this. The other thing we need to do is, though, focus on not comparing, but preparing. Notice now in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, there's the theme of comparison in there again, but notice in the middle that our affliction is preparing for us the glory. Right? So he's now not talking strictly just about the comparison. He's talking now about the active relationship between suffering and glory. Because here's how we tend to think. We tend to think if I'm suffering, it diminishes glory. If I'm in a hardship, I don't know how God is going to be glorified. That is not biblical thinking. That is not distinctively Christian thinking. The way the Christian thinks about this is I'm suffering and it's working for me. It is preparing for me this exceeding glory that cannot be comprehended. In other words, your suffering is your servant. Your hurts are your helpers. Our pain is our employee. Our affliction is our assistant. Our consternation is our consultant. They all work for us. They all prepare for us an eternal weight of glory. They punch the clock that makes you eternally rich. I got to get me a Pentecostal church. but I gotta, We got to get a church that know when to say amen, Dennis. We got to learn to reason this way. We got to learn to think this way when we're hurting. Because when we hurt, we must understand that the hurting is working for us. Not, not in the hurt itself, but in the eternal weight of glory. It's preparing it. Your pain is like your mom when you were a child. Home during the summers, perhaps. Who comes to you and says, what you want for lunch? Want me to make you a sandwich? And you say, yeah, peanut butter and jelly. You want me to cut off the crust? Yes, ma'am. Mom goes in the kitchen, makes you the best peanut butter and jelly sandwich ever. Lightly toasted, spread evenly. Comes back and gives it to you. Now, don't you ever go home and act like your mama or your servant. It's just an illustration. But that's what your pain is like. Your pain just fixing your sandwiches. Your pain just bringing you your meal. Your pain is bringing you your slippers. Your, your, your pain is cleaning the house for you. Your, your pain is mowing the yard for you. Your pain is your servant producing for you glory. So when it walks in the room, say, welcome, my servant. Fix me glory. This is how we want to reason as Christians. So we need to Maybe land a plane here with the words of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, where it says again that this faith, this tested genuineness of your faith, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter transports us to the thing we live for, to see Jesus. And when our Savior is revealed to us, well, then, we will, then we will really worship. Our genuine faith 
will result in praise and glory and honor when we see him. Now, the Apostle Peter writes much earlier than the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. But nearly those exact words form the climax of Revelation chapter 4. We were thinking about this chapter just this past Thursday in Bible study. And so you will know what happens in chapters 2 and 3, John writes the seven letters to the churches in Asia. In chapter 4, John hears a voice, it's the voice of Jesus, calling him up. And when he's called up with Jesus in the heavens, John says he sees a door open and a throne. He gets a vision into the very throne room of God. And he goes into that throne room and he begins to tell us what he sees. He sees not just a throne, but he sees one sitting on the throne. And, and his presence defies description. So John says things like, he looks like two kinds of jewels. And there's lightning and thunder around the throne. And John looks and in front of the throne are, are seven torches, which he tells us are the seven spirits of God. The Holy Spirit is there in all of his perfection. And there is something that, again, he has a hard time describing. So he says, you know what it's like? It's like a sea made of glass, and it surrounds the whole throne, and it separates the throne from these other thrones, 24 smaller thrones. And on these 24 thrones are elders who sit on the thrones around the throne. And then John tells us a little bit later, and, and next to the main throne, the big throne, are four living creatures. One has the face like an ox. Another has a face like a lion. Another has the face of an eagle. Another has the face of a man. They each have six wings. And on the inside and outside of the wings are covered with eyes. And they are right next to the throne. And those four living creatures, you know what they do in heaven the whole time? They sing. They sing. They say to God that he is worthy. That he is, he, he is the God who was and is and is to come. And they just keep singing. And you know what the 4 and 24 elders do? When the angels start singing, the elders cast down their crown, they get off their throne, they fall down, and they sing too. Almost the exact words that we see here in Peter. The angels say, worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. And I'm led to believe from Peter's testimony and the rest of the testimony of Revelation that our voices too will be joined together with those angels around the throne, with those elders on their throne, with all of the redeemed for all of time, and we will praise God. We will give him glory and honor and praise and majesty. All of our trials will be finished working for us. And all that will be left is glory. Beloved, don't you know you don't take suffering with you to heaven? You don't take pain and problems and hardship with you into glory? We drop that at the door. And we are clothed finally in righteousness and splendor, worthy of worshiping our God. So Peter in verse 7 is telling us in so many words, that's going to be our song forever. That when this life is done and our faith is purified and is proven to be genuine, we're going to stand face to face with Jesus Christ when he is revealed. And we're going to sing praise and glory and honor be unto you, the lamb who was slain 
who is risen, who reigns in glory. Beloved, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. We want you to get in on that. Forget what you heard about what it means to be a Christian. Forget concerns about it being strict and boring and hard. Sometimes, stop thinking so short-term. You want to have fun at the next party. You want to have fun at the next whatever. You, you want to cast off restraint and live your own way. Beloved, your life has an end date, just like mine does. And then there's eternity, which never ends. And the mistake a lot of people make is they want to try and have their life now. while thinking nothing about the life to come. That's a disastrous mistake. No, beloved, what we offer you is life now and life forevermore. We offer you a life that's pleasing to God, not through your actions, not through your works, not because we say so, but because Jesus has made it so. He has lived a perfect life in your place, and he has died on the cross for your sins and our sins. And so now, through turning from sin and putting our faith in him and living for him as our Lord and our God, everything he is and everything he has and everything he promises becomes ours. His righteousness becomes ours. His perfection becomes ours. His holiness becomes ours. The way he loves the Father, his love for the Father becomes our love for the Father. Everything we need to be reconciled to God and pleasing to God, we get through Jesus Christ. And he offers himself to you so that everything you need, he would supply for you personally that you might have this day in glory, which never ends. And beloved, I assure you, if you follow Jesus, you will have trials. You'll have hardships, but they will not be worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in you. They won't be worth comparing to the glory that God has prepared for you. So, put your faith in Jesus. Turn away from sin. Follow him, Jesus, right into everlasting life and glory. That's what's on offer. That's what God wants for you. Don't harden your hearts. Don't distract yourself. Consider what the Bible is teaching and put your faith in the Lord. We would like nothing more than to help you understand that more fully. If you've got questions, your questions are welcome here. We'll help you as best we can with the questions by opening the Bible and telling you what's in the Bible or sharing parts of our own life. We'll pray with you. We'll encourage you. We'll help you learn how to study the Bible and how to live, begin to live as a Christian. That's why we exist. So we'd like nothing more than to talk with you more about this after the service, if that's you. Don't leave today. Don't leave today without securing your relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ and your place in his kingdom through that same faith. And my brother and sister, who are Christians already, let's think like Christians when it comes to our trials. Our trials are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. And it's indeed our trials that's preparing for us 
that same glory. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you and give you praise for what you tell us in your word. Every line of it true. Every promise of it guaranteed through Christ. We thank you, O Lord, that you have a salvation that you've already prepared. And you're waiting for it to be finally revealed. Until then, we are aware that we will sometimes suffer trials. Someone has said that we either going through a trial, just came out of a trial, or headed into another one. That just seems all too true. But we thank you that we can think not just about our trials and be honest about those, but we can and should rejoice in the salvation we have so that our trials are seen as momentary and light afflictions compared to what we will be and what we will receive. But we do confess, Lord, we, we tire of hurting, we tire of pain, we tire of suffering. And the world is full of it. And so we pray, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord. Bring that kingdom that you have promised and prepared. Uh, bring that kingdom where there is no more suffering or dying, uh, where there is no more pain. Bring that kingdom where there's only glory and love and light and laughter. Come quickly that we might be with you, O oh Lord, finally and forever. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.